Now today, I, I'd like to ask you, today, we're going to be talking about the, we're going to be talking about like the fourth aspect of our go for the gold vision. And we, we began um, with just kind of a, a launching on New Year's Day of realizing that that gold, frankincense, and myrrh that the Magi brought to the child Jesus represent the gold for all of us, the treasure of our heart, real worship is giving to the Father not the leftovers, not the crumbs, not the, not like, oh, well, yeah, I think I need, to, I need to go to worship kind of as an afterthought. No, that, like those magi who carefully, carefully collected and prepared an offering of gold for the Messiah, in all of our lives, real worship, real worship, is bringing the gold, what we most treasure in our lives, and bringing it to our Heavenly Father in worship and praise. Now, through January, we looked at um, three aspects of going for the gold. One is the gold mine of God's Word, and the, and the key passage on that is Psalm 19, and we're going to be coming back to that in what I call a kind of a mini Bible discovery workshop. So Psalm 19 is still a key passage in what we're talking about. And then we looked at the gold quest. That is, what am I after? What is the goal of my spiritual journey? And it's nothing less than being conformed to the image of Christ. It's the gold of Christ-likeness. And then we looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, delving into how that material of gold is, is a symbol of the character qualities that come as a fruit of grace. So we talked about rewards in the realm of grace, and uh, then we talked last Sunday about gold in our goals. When I'm setting goals, how can I be sure in all of my goals that, that these goals have long-term impact and that they're part of God's will for my life? And that is really realizing that in all of our lives, God has gifted each of us in unique ways when we surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, the works, the results, the fruit that comes out of our life has the quality of gold when our singular desire is to glorify God. And, and it's a wonderful thing to step back and think about how simple that is. The goal to glorify God is the gold in all of our other goals. The goal to glorify God, even in a very specific, if it's a goal for fitness, or weight loss, if it's a goal in finances, if it's a goal in family life, if it's a goal in business, if it's a goal of achieving a, a, an academic pursuit, if I am a born-again child of God, if I'm walking with him to have that kind of authentic faith that is for God's glory, I can bring any of those goals before him, and I can let my life be the raw, mater raw material like a, like a great nugget of gold that he can direct and design and deploy. You might say in a way that for all of us, the gifts in our lives and the gifts in, these, in this church and the wonderful way, the wonderful diverse way that God gifts his people is a part of the raw material, the nuggets of gold that God has given each of us and when we make it our goal to glorify God, then every specific goal, even a very granular goal in our lives, 
that is very close to our hearts, it gets elevated to a, a different level when we say, Lord, this is my goal. I've charted it out. I've scoped it out. It's a measurable. It's a smart goal. It's specific. It's measurable. It's attainable. Last week we saw it should be relational. It should be relationally wise. Does this goal um, supplement and strengthen my, my marriage, my family, the, my closest relationships? And then, of course, is it timely? So in all of those SMART goals, as granular and as specific and as intimately personal as they may be, if we can bring them to the Lord and we can say, Lord, I want, I really want your gold in my goals. <laughs> and I want my goals to move me down the track of what we're going to talk about today in 1 Peter, which is authentic faith. Now, we set this theme verse uh, for February that uh, we'll say again aloud because, again, it kind of capsulizes these uh, four aspects of going for the gold that we're, um, these four themes that we're going to continue to um, work together on. And let's read this verse together. Therefore, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So simple. What a great kind of quick memory verse. It's easy to remember. It's easy to share. Now let's personalize it and put the I in there instead of the you and just make it my personal expression. Therefore, whether I eat or drink or whatever I do, do all to the glory of God. Now, if we can take that to heart, it again, I think it's notable that in that passage, Paul, in a passage that deals with some really heavy-duty doctrinal issues, the practice of communion in the church, the Lord's Supper, uh, the issue of the cultural challenge that believers were facing, and it's also a chapter in which Paul reaches way back into the history of the Old Testament and says all these things that happened to the people that were brought out of Egypt, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, they happened as examples for us that we could find God's best in our lives as many of them actually missed God's best as he points back into those stories. So again, when we say do all to the glory of God, it, it doesn't mean everything we do is some religious act. It means that in essence, that there is no, in the, in the eyes of God under the lordship of Jesus, we don't live in a secular and spiritual world divided by some big barrier, <laughs> like some big plexiglass wall. No, in the, in under Christ, under the lordship of Jesus, it's not secular or spiritual, it's all spiritual. And we're called to move in the realm of career, vocation, academics, fitness, finance, marriage, family, child raising, goal setting, daily planning, lawn mowing and weed eating, <laughs> you, know, you know, all these, and we do it under the glory of God. What a great way to approach not only the mundane tasks of life, but the, the big challenges of life. So I want to ask you to open your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 1. The first chapter of 1 Peter, as we now will match up, um, we will bring together another key chapter that is a part of this uh, package of going for the gold. We have Psalm 19, 1 Corinthians 3, and now 1 Peter 1. And all of these relate to our, our going for the gold vision, the gold. The gold mine is God's word. The gold quest 
is Christ-likeness. The gold in our goals is the character qualities and excellence that a believer pursues in order to bring good works unto God. We saw again last week that the word works is not a bad word because we're not under works of law. It's a productive word. And we saw that in 1 Timothy and in Titus, the Bible says, though, though not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost, not by works of righteousness, by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is not of works, lest anyone should boast. Amen? Don't shout me down. And the next verse in Ephesians is, and yet we're his workmanship, we're his masterpiece, the Greek means there, you're a masterpiece design of God, and each of you individually are masterpiece designs of God, so that out of your life, Ephesians 2.10 says, will come works. Shout out the word works. Don't be afraid of the word works, okay? Freed from the law, freed from condemnation, freed from any merit, the works, the produce, the actions and attitudes and character and motive of a believer becomes a productive design by God to express uniquely his glory in ways no other human being on earth can express it. Just as there are no two babies alike, just as there are no two thumbprints or fingerprints alike, just as God has invested individuality in the very design of biology, in the very same way, he's designed his church, the redeemed people of God, to be set free by the glory of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus that we sang about this morning, and being set free, then real works, living works, not dead works, living works that come out of the reality of Jesus Christ dwelling in the heart so we can do what this text says, that last phrase, so that we can do all to the glory of God. Yes, you can. It's true. And 1 Peter chapter 1, then, as we think about the gold mine of God's word, the gold quest of Christ-likeness, the gold in our goals of asking God to work in our works, trusting the Holy Spirit's life-giving power for our daily works. And then we come to what I call the gold test. And 1 Peter chapter 1 gives it to us in these words. And to start with, um, I'd like to invite you in your own Bible uh, to, to read with me um, the First uh, Peter chapter 1, but I need to change translations here because I need to do it this way. So let's read together in uh, 1 Peter chapter 1 and uh, verse 3 through 11, and I'm going to read to you today from the New American Standard translation. You may have the NIV, uh, wonderful translation. I'm going to read to you from the New American Standard. So the wording will be just a bit different if, if you're uh, unfamiliar with this. And what we find here is a truth that all revolves around Jesus being raised from the dead. 
Now, when you think about the resurrection, we think naturally about Easter morning. And when we do, we are reminded that death has triumphed, that life has triumphed over death. And in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, Peter begins by explaining that that victorious resurrection has birthed us, followers of Christ, into a living hope. Here's the wording from 1 Peter 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Now pause and think about this, that because of the resurrection of Jesus, there is now in eternity an inheritance for you that nothing in this world can steal from you. It is a safe inheritance. There's no fluctuation in that stock market. There's no, there's, there's, there's no gap in that security. There are, no, there, are, there, there are no hackers in that cyberspace. That is the security of your eternal relationship with the living God and all the riches, all the wealth, all the value of what Jesus purchased for us in his resurrection is a part of you already as a born-again child of God. I want to ask you to note two places in this chapter where the new birth, being born again, coming to Christ, accepting him as Lord and Savior, is the absolute anchor for the authentic faith that we're going to talk about in verses 6 and 7. I want to show you these together because in your own Bible, I'd encourage you to mark these. It's a missing element of much Christian talk in our culture today. There's a lot of chatter around Christian behavior and Christian ethics and Christian beliefs without an understanding that every single individual must come to Christ. That we don't, there aren't, somebody put it this way many years ago, one of the most succinct ways to say it, I think it was David DuPlessis who said, God has no grandchildren. We don't just become a Christian by sitting in pews or seats or whatever. We don't become a Christian by being a part of a building, in a building. We don't become a Christian by the kind of music we listen to. We don't become a Christian by hanging around other people who talk about Jesus. It is an individual new birth experience, and it is so powerfully embedded in 1 Peter chapter 1 in these two places. I think everyone should see it and mark it in their own Bible. First, it's in that third verse that I read. Notice that it says, In the power of his resurrection, he caused us to be born again. That is, every individual can experience what Jesus talked to Nicodemus about in the third chapter of the Gospel of John when he said to this aged and very accomplished and very advanced in his life, work, and career, Nicodemus, 
considered one of the wisest men of the Sanhedrin. And at night, when he's puzzled about the mighty power and the glory that he sees in the person of Jesus, Jesus just puts it to him straight. Nicodemus, you know it, don't you? Say it with me. You must be born again. Here's the call of Christ in our day in a new way to the church, to our church, to every church, to every gathering of believers. Are you born again? Have you accepted Christ as your Savior? Have you repented of your sin? Have you come to the cross and said, Lord, apart from you, I can do nothing. But I accept that you paid the penalty for my sin in the shedding of your blood and in your victorious resurrection that you gave me this promise that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord can be born again, shall be saved. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, with your Bible open, go down to that 23rd verse. Would you look at that? 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23. Peter, in his writing about the shaping of authentic faith, comes back to this to show that the only way real love and genuine change can happen in the hearts of people is if they have been born again. Look at that verse 23. He's exhorted in verse 22, a higher level of love. Let me ask you how many believers you think believers ought to need to learn more about real love. What do you think, huh? You think we need to advance in our love level? Amen? The ladies today are going to be talking about that a little bit. But look at verse 23. It says that in Christ being born again, not of a corruptible seed, but of the incorruptible, which is the living and enduring word of God. The new birth becomes God's defining way to shape an authentic faith. Another way to put it is, we can't have an authentic faith without being born again. So, in this letter that we hold in our hands, as we think of the first chapter of 1 Peter, we're looking at one of the letters written a little bit later in the experience of the early church than some of Paul's epistles. And it is in a time in 63 AD, the seventh decade of the first century, in which the prominence of the Roman Empire and the overwhelming influence of Greek culture made every place the gospel was preached by the apostles and by those who were sent out by apostolic ministry, it made every place a place of great new beginnings, but in the midst of a hostile culture. And it was only within about five years that this became such a crisis point because of the problems that Nero had in his reign that persecution, fierce persecution, broke out among uh, in the Roman Empire against many believers, many Christians. If you would just look in your uh, Bible in 1 Peter chapter 4, go over about three chapters there, and look at 1 Peter chapter 4. We see that uh, this issue in verse 12 of chapter 4 is one of a 
consistent theme that Peter addresses. And just as we said, do all to the glory of God, Peter shows that same principle in the way that he counseled followers of Christ to deal with adversity. He said, beloved, in 412 of 1 Peter, and I'm reading the New King James Bible here, beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. Now this sounds like a contradiction, doesn't it? How in the world could you be happy about suffering? How could anyone think of being just exhilarated about somebody attacking us? Our natural human instinct is obvious, isn't it? When we're attacked, when we're criticized, when we are accused, when we face opposition or discouragement or adversity, our instinct is either to run and hide or to fight back, or in many cases, if it's ongoing, if it's verbal abuse, if it's an environment of abuse, um, it, can, it can cause a person to plunge into deep depression or fear or um, many, many different reactions. Now, when the Bible tells us something that sounds so drastically contrary to our natural instincts, what can we get from it? Peter is not talking about human strength. He's talking about the authentic faith that is already in their lives. And in the face of great adversity, not because of our works, right, but because of what Christ has done in the resurrection, we can actually, we literally can rejoice in the face of that which we hate. How could that be? Only through the resurrection power of Christ. It's a new birth gift. It is a new birth reality. And we may wonder, how can we activate that? Well, I think first chapter, the first chapter gives us kind of the template of what it means to tap into this dynamic and truly supernatural power. And when you look at that first chapter of 1 Peter, we, we find four elements of how this um, authentic faith is to be shaped. Now, the first, if you go back to chapter 1, please notice in your own Bible, in 1 Peter chapter 1, go back to the very first two verses. And when you do that, you see that um, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, Peter addresses this letter, again, within a five-year time when before serious, severe persecution, and persecution was already breaking out in the Nero realm. And he says, he's writing this. Notice the phrase that Peter uses in verse 1. Peter, to the, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion. Now, the five regions that are listed there won't mean anything to us uh, because they're not common in our geography. But there are five regions of what's really modern-day Turkey. If you just think of the modern-day map of Turkey, it's roughly that entire region. And in all these five regions, he's talking to people in all these provinces in a vast 
territory who will get this letter and this letter will be circulated. And he calls them the sojourners or the pilgrims. That is, these are a part of the vast numbers of people in the Roman Empire who had migrated to different parts of the Roman Empire during a time in which travel and transportation and communication had advanced dramatically relative to what it had been before. And many of these were from Jewish backgrounds, but Peter includes the Gentiles in it by saying that we are all exiles in this world. Exiles of the dispersion, in other words, really applies to all of us. We're not in our natural habitat. Uh, Philippians 3.20 puts it this way, Our citizenship is in heaven, from whence we wait for the Savior to return, and we're living in a, an alien land. I think it's especially relevant, that first point, about the culture that we live in today. I was hit, as many of you were this week, with more news that just makes you literally feel fear for the very future of the educational system of our country. Um, and without getting into the details, I read it and I think, wow, it's hard to believe that people in education could actually believe that it's valuable to children to promote some of the things that they're promoting. And the more shocked we are, the more it should remind us in Scripture of where we are as followers of Jesus. We are not taken out of this world, but we are in this world as exiles of the dispersion. The second thing that this uh, letter shows, this chapter, is that we're heirs of an eternal treasure. We saw that in verse 3. And it's because you have this treasure in heaven that you can count on God's grace in everyday life to get you through these tough places. And then look at that 6th and 7th verse. And if you go down there in your own Bible, look at verse 6. In this, in all of these things, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you've been grieved by various trials. More than we can possibly put into words, you and I live in a culture that is hostile to the character of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. That puts pressure on us, and that pressure produces tests and trials. And verse 6 says it's a necessary part. Why would God say it's necessary to go through trials? Well, I think it's because the next part is in verse 13. He calls us to an action oriented anticipation. That is, God puts it before us that our walk with Christ, your walk with Christ, is so valuable that you can now, according to verse 7, which is the heart of this passage, you can now see value in being tested that you never could have seen before. I hope that one thing that could come out of this today would be a reshaping, a reframing of how we see going through tests. And I think a key question to ask about verse 7 is, where is your next test taking you? 
Now, that may feel like an odd thing to think about, but if you go back in your past and look at how you've been tested in the past, you know that you've been through some things at times that left you weary, discouraged, and frustrated. May I see your hand? Anybody got through? Okay. And you go back and you say, wow, that was frustrating. Have you ever been through a problem and you came out of it and you just thought, I'm glad that's over with? <laughs> and of course, that's a natural, again, that's a natural human reaction. But 1 Peter 1.7 gives us a perspective that's quite interesting. Read the text in your own Bible there, 1 Peter 1.7, that the testing of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, this is an amazing thing. Here, God really shows us that because of our status in life, that we've been planted somewhere we didn't choose, we're in a culture that's hostile to our Lord and Savior, we all go through tests that press us and pressure us, but God always has a positive purpose in the test. He allows us to be tested in order to bring about something that reveals the power of Jesus Christ living in your life. Now, here's where we've got to connect, and I'd like you to keep your Bible open here to 1 Peter 1 to think about this verse 7. Because the reason you can look forward, you might say, Pastor Joe, you're really blowing my mind today. you telling me I can look forward to getting tested? <laughs> and, I, and I say, well, realistically, um, I wouldn't have said that. But this is exactly what God's Word is telling us, that there's such a positive value in being tested by God. If we understand how the word test is used, that you literally can say, where is my next test taking me? Why should you ask that question? Because every test we go through is God getting us ready for something better. Now, you're staring at me like you're wondering, how could that possibly be true? But I assure you, it is true because he said we're strangers before you and sojourners as all our fathers were. This is David praying as I read earlier. He said our days on the earth are like a shadow. There's no abiding place here on earth. Even in the Old Testament, you see, they were anticipating the day to come when in the kingdom of God, we would understand what this means to be strangers. Peter uses it not only in verse 1 and 2, but he uses it in chapter 2, verse 11. He uses it again in chapter 4. And that is this sojourners, this travelers. I think of it like this. In 1 Peter, there's a golden thread of identity that runs through these five chapters. The emphasis of chapter 1 and chapter 2, 11 and 13 and chapter 4, verse 12, it is that God gives all of us a place in our lives that pre prepares us to be used of God in a way no other individual could be used. Now, I know it's hard to wrap your mind around that, but if we see what 1 Peter 1, 7 is saying, 
There's an individual way God uses you. I like to summarize it this way. You became a sojourner and an exile through the new birth, and the word, the Greek word behind that pilgrim or sojourner is a word that literally means a neighbor walking alongside an alien, an alien neighbor, a stranger, and yet put alongside. The actual, the Greek word itself has a root from which eventually evolved the English word parish or parishioner. And the idea behind it was that uh, that's used in liturgical churches, but basically the idea behind it was that Christians are called to be neighbors alongside a hostile culture. To live successfully and, and uh, reflecting Christ, living alongside those who are blind to the majesty of God's glory. Now, there's a reason why Peter brings all that together in this text, and one of them is, one of them is he reaches back into two parts of ancient history. He, he reaches back to Abraham because of the first thing that God told Abraham when he, when he gave him the gift of righteousness, the, the seed plot for future salvation. God said, your people will dwell in a land not their own for over 400 years, and they will be strangers in a country that is not their own. That became, in the Exodus time, a reason for um, God's promise to them, as the book of Acts tells us, that they would prosper where they sojourned. An amazing thing. Here they are, and they're, when you get to Exodus 1, you see the people of God multiplying and prospering even under duress. And the pattern of that is a picture of the exiles in our lives. We're exiles in a world that does not recognize our Lord and Savior, and yet God doesn't say, I'm sending a helicopter to, to uh, evacuate you tomorrow. No, he says, I've put you there to live alongside the pagan. With the light of Christ shining in you in such a way that being a sojourner, being an exile, rather than being a negative, becomes a positive. First Peter 1.7 says, It's so important to God that the world see the reflected glory of Jesus in redeemed, born-again faces. That he'll let you go through test after test after test not to hurt you, not to harm you, but to test and approve you so that he uses you increasingly with confidence in this journey. Abraham had a tough decision to make when he was not a possessor of any real estate anywhere in the promised land. Now think about this. Abraham the guy that we call the, the great man of faith, the great model of faith, even after becoming the father of Isaac, even after taking Isaac up to Mount Moriah and discovering God providing the lamb, even after all that, do you realize that there was not one title deed to real estate in Abraham's home filing cabinet? He did not own real estate in the promised land. And he's the promised man. What was Abraham? An exile sent by God 
living alongside the pagan and reflecting the glory of a coming kingdom. Peter reaches back into the Abrahamic story and he demonstrates that God has made it possible through the new birth that not just one champion like Abraham, but all the champions like you can be redeemed people of God who live, you may say, I don't possess any real estate in this world. Oh, maybe my home and my land and my, a few things. But ultimately, I, my citizenship, my real estate is in heaven. And I want to live with this real estate as a reflection of my faith in him. The character of true faith in Genesis 23 is where, where Abraham finally bought one piece of land. In Genesis 23, the guy who's the promised guy in the promised land has no real estate until Genesis 23. And then, when Sarah dies, Abraham negotiates with, the family of, uh, with a family of the land for the cave of Machpelah, where he can bury his dead. And historians, the great historian uh, Paul Johnson accents this in his book, great book called The History of the Jews. This is the moment in which physical possession of the promised land became a tangible reality when Abraham bought a burial cave for Sarah. Now, in that moment, even as he made the transaction, they're sitting at the, at the uh, desk, they're closing the deal, and the title company is there, and everybody, you know, the lawyers, everything. And, he, and, and Abraham says, Abraham says, I'm still a stranger and a sojourner among you. Peter picks that up in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, and says, we're exactly what Abraham was even when he bought the cave of Machpelah. We're strangers and sojourners. In that moment, Abraham was demonstrating what real faith is. Now, here's how Peter did it, okay? An expanded trans Greek translation of 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1 and 2 is best expressed this way. I'm writing, look at this if you will. I'm writing to those who have settled down alongside a pagan population, sown as seed throughout Galatia, Cappadocia, Pontus, Bithynia, all those names he gave. You're like, but think of this. He said, you, the people of God, are like seed sown by God alongside a pagan population. Why? Because you were chosen to receive something from God. I'm going to pause and ask you to just do a simple thing. I was chosen to receive from God. Would you say that? I was chosen to receive from God. He wants us to keep receiving. You're chosen to be recipients, he said, of the sanctifying work of the Spirit in 1 Peter 1, 1 and 2 literally means the setting apart work of the Holy Spirit resulting in obedience. Now, I'm going to complete this part with this today because then there, there, there's more. I just want to give you this because I think the way we see this then frames this exciting truth, and I know it's hard to believe it, but it's Bible, 
and it's powerful, the exciting truth that your next test is God's opportunity for you to grow in anticipation that a test is not something to fear, it is something to value because of the God who makes it possible to do this. We are like seed sown on this planet. Think of it now. Now let's take a big, like a, a Google Earth view of this. Let's go way back, a big wide-angle view on planet Earth. <laughs> and what we're reading here really is this, that we're all sojourners on this planet, and, it, and this plan was designed by God to bring many sons to glory. The link is this. In 1 Peter 1.13, Peter says, if you know these things about being a sojourner, he says, you can prepare your mind for action. Would you mark that in your Bible? 1 Peter 1.13, prepare your mind for action. Oh my. That's what we need as a church. It's what we need as individuals. It's what we need in our marriage. It's what we need in addressing the culture around us. It's what we need in our work. And your work matters, by the way. Your work matters to God. The fact that you're there. When you take this wide-angle lens and you look at the planet, you realize Peter is saying, get ready for action and set your hope fully on what's coming. God is promising to use you in your test. And then just a a quick uh, cross-reference passage I'd like you to see there so you have it, if you'd like to look at it later, is Hebrews 2, verses 9 and 10. Now, this concludes this part because, in a beautiful way because the writer of the book of Hebrews does what Peter is doing as he thinks of what does it mean to live for God in this world. With all of its trouble, with all of its heartache, with all of its suffering, with all of the contradictions, with all of the adversity. And Hebrews 2.9, he says, when we look at this world, we don't yet see, we don't yet see the things of this world under the feet of man. Can you say an amen? We look at injustice in the courts. We look at people getting literally getting away with murder. We look at weird, crazy political corruption that just seems to go on and on and on. We look at the things, as I mentioned, the, the evil that's being perpetrated against children in our culture, this, this wretched gender-fluid lie that is becoming a, a, an, an absolute assault on the innocent of ch- innocence of children. We look at these things and we say, wow, this is bad and it's getting worse. How many of you have said something similar lately? It's bad and it's getting worse. It looks worse than it did a year ago. It looks worse than it did five years ago. But you see, Hebrews 2.9 says, we don't yet see all these things put under man. Here's the key phrase. But we see Jesus. Could you say those four words with me? But we see Jesus. And he accents his humanity as well as his deity there. He says, we see Jesus made a little lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor, over the works of God's hands, and God chose to redeem us by sending His Son to be like us, so that He who sanctifies sets apart, and those who are set apart are of one through the covenant 
so that in bringing many sons to glory, He, the Savior, would be made perfect through suffering. Now, the phrase that's so powerful there is, God is planning to bring His sons and daughters to glory. You may say, wow, what kind of glory is that? It doesn't feel that way <laughs> to me in the midst of my trials. But the beauty of it is, it's exactly what Peter is saying. When we see what's coming, when we see the shaping of authentic faith, when we see God doing a work in your life so that you can reflect the glory, the wisdom, the grace, the kindness, the love of God to others, it's no less than the truth of seed sown in this planet. On planet Earth, your presence makes a difference. Let's pray. Lord, I pray today that we can go throughout this coming week, maybe with a fresh awareness, that there is a true glory of being born again. It's not, it's not some aura. It's not some halo. It's not some glow. It's the reality that the risen Christ dwells in chosen vessels. And these chosen vessels are, yes, being tested not to hurt them, but to equip them to be powerfully used of God. Amen.